there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Today, this morning, this evening, this afternoon, whatever day it is for you, wherever you are, I'd like to talk to you about disparity. I want to define it first because, you know, I like to do that because I play with words and I like to find their roots. I like to find the origins of words. I like to see how language has grown and morphed and changed and how it has been used to keep us asleep because that's what language does. Just in case you hadn't noticed, language as we use it keeps us asleep and keeps us in our patterns. So this is why in the work it says if you're lips are moving, you're probably asleep. You're talking, you're probably asleep. One of the things we do when we talk is we go to sleep. And the reason we do is because we have words that we think mean one thing that don't mean that at all. They mean that to us, but it doesn't mean they mean it to other people we're talking to. But we use the same word, and so the people think they're understanding what we're saying. And then you end up in a world like this, in a world where people are cracking each other's skulls, hating each other, misunderstanding each other. In the work, it's called the confusion of tongues. It means that we don't have a common language. We just imagine that we have a common language. So I like to take a word and I like to find its origin and I like to talk about its origin and then move through time to where we are with it now. So disparity comes from the Latin disparare, to separate, from dis plus parare, to prepare, but more like pair, P-A-R-E. So to pair is to trim off an outside excess or regular part of something. A disparity, as we use the word today, is a great difference, as in the great disparity of weight between the sun and the planets. So there's a huge disparity. You know, we know that the sun weighs so much more than all of the planets put together. Huge disparity. There's a disparity in us that is easily as great as the weight between the sun and the planets. What makes this a problem is our inability to see it. Pretty much what makes everything a problem for us is our inability to see it. We just are not able to see things. We were discussing a person and some behavior that this person had had. And our tendency is to judge the person for the behavior. It's true, that person did have that behavior. And it's and it may be a wonderful behavior or maybe heinous behavior. It doesn't matter. Whatever we judge a person on for their behavior, what we've done is we said, that is that person. And there's a disparity between what that person does and who that person is. Just like there's a disparity between what you know and what you are. So that's why we all know better but we act worse. You know better than to do certain things, but then you do them. Why is that? Well, one is because you forget yourself. One is because you're asleep and you're mechanical and it just happens because there's a disparity between what you know and what you are. So that's the problem. This work at one level gives us a way to address the disparity and actually lessen it while gradually moving toward something else. The problem with the something else is that we're goal-oriented. We want to know exactly what the something else is. Okay, what am I going to get? What am I going to do? When I'm fully conscious, when I'm man number seven, what's it going to be like? I can't tell you that. And even if I could tell you that, it's all imagination for you. So not only will it not help you, it will actually hinder you because it will it will cultivate this atmosphere in you of imagination. And then the next thing you know, you'll be drunk on imagination and you won't, you'll just be man number seven. 
You won't do a darn thing about it. You'll just be man number seven. Where will you be man number seven? In your imagination. Why is that a problem? Because imagination satisfies every center. Every center will agree and say, yes, that's right. I'm man number seven. And then you'll go around being a guru, man number seven. You'll tell people this and you'll tell people that. And you'll probably convince people because people are very suggestible. You probably convince people, some people, that you are man number seven. And some people will be thrilled to have man number seven they can blame stuff on. Oh, good. I've got man number seven now. It's all his fault. Oh, I've got man number seven now. He's going to fix me. Oh, I've got man number seven now, and now I'm close to man number seven. He's going to make everything okay, or she's going to make everything okay. And it's all imagination. And it's all a matter of giving away our power, giving away our potential, giving giving away our possibility of becoming man number seven, or in our case, man number four. So, or maybe even man number five. I mean, maybe you're already in the process of becoming man number four. Maybe you move in and out of that. Maybe you are starting to balance your centers. Maybe you are starting to find some balance. That's a possibility, depending on how long you've been in the work. It's not that unreachable. Unreachable. It is possible. And then maybe, who knows, maybe if you're moving toward man number four, then you're moving toward man number five, six, and seven, and eight. Oh, but wait, Gertrude didn't say about anything about man number eight. Yeah, I know. But he didn't tell us everything. And maybe he didn't know everything. <gasps> what? Gurdjieff didn't know everything? There's a distinct possibility Gurdjieff didn't know everything. Maybe he was a person who was developing just like everyone else. Maybe he was just a little further along the path. I don't know. I never met the man. And it's not my place to judge him anyway. What do I know? So whatever. What I want to do is kind of strip away the craziness and the imagination about it and say, look, this work is not Gurdjieff's work. It has to be your work. You must make it yours. And there's only one way to do that. You have to lessen this disparity between knowledge and being. That's what has to happen for us. We've got to be able to be what we know. Can you live what you know? They call it other things in other practices. You know, they say, well, the guy talks it, but he doesn't walk it. And that's just, all that is, is an acknowledgement that that person knows more than they can be. Now, if in that system, in, in that discipline, they were aware that they also know more than they can be, they wouldn't judge that person harshly. They would simply say, yeah, well, he knows more than he can be, just like the rest of us. So you often hear me say, well, blah, 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 just like the rest of us. It's because I want to acknowledge it's all of us. We're all in this together. Yeah, some people know more than others. Some people can be more than others. Some people know less, but they can be more. Most people know more and can be less. We don't know where we are and that it doesn't really matter. All we know is what we have to work on. You need to work on being what you know. So when I speak of the disparity between what we know and what we are, or the disparity between our knowledge and our being, this is why we know better and act worse. The ramifications of this disparity may not be immediately obvious. The reason being the powerful illusion that we're fully conscious. We can't be told this enough. We're unconscious. We are not awake. We are sleeping machines. Varying degrees of sleeping machines. Some sleeping machines are very aware of certain things. There's some sleeping machines that when they drive, they're very aware. And there are other sleeping machines that when they drive, they are completely unconscious. There are some sleeping machines that when they eat, they're completely unconscious. There are other sleeping machines that when they eat, they are very conscious. So, but we're all still sleeping machines and we may sleep in this area and be awake in that area. To find somebody awake in six areas is to find a real jewel. To find somebody who can be awake in two areas at the same time is a lot. To find somebody who can be awake in three areas and have some proficiency there is a lot. You know, then we look to those people as teachers. We look to those people as 
masters in certain areas. That doesn't mean they've got it all mastered. It just means in those areas, they've got it mastered. And in those areas, they have some authority. In those areas, there's something that we can get from them. And in another area, they may be able to get something from us. So why I do what I do the way I do it is because I realize that I'm still growing and unfolding. And I expect to be able to get something from people as well as people getting something from me. So I look at it as more of an exchange and more of an exchange, not of knowledge, but an exchange of energy and experience. So for me, my way of dealing with the disparity is to try and bridge it, to try and bring the two things together, to try and fill one up to the measure of the other. So if the knowledge is high and the being is low, then I want to bring the being up to the knowledge. I don't want to bring the knowledge down to the being, but that can work too. There are some people who are so in their heads, have so much knowledge. What was it Solomon said about knowledge? He said, knowledge puffs up. In other words, it makes people proud. So you get knowledge, you become very proud. But then you can imagine that because you know it, you are being it. The worst despots in the world were the people who had the knowledge but didn't have the being. But they imagined they had the being because they had the knowledge. And then they would do horrible things and try and make other people do horrible things or do horrible things to other people. This leads to so many complications that widen the gap between knowledge and being. It makes our lives a living hell of useless, unnecessary suffering. The work says that understanding is the most powerful force that we can create in ourselves and holds that to merely know will not change your being. This is very unfortunate. If all we had to do is read a book or hear it, and then that would change our being, that would be wonderful. We'd all just read the book and we go, oh, aha, and your being would just be changed. But that's not the way it works. We all find that out the hard way. We go to the seminars, we read the books, we listen to the podcasts, we go to the lectures, we do this, we do that. And then we find after a year that we're still going off on the road. Somebody cuts us off and we still do the same thing we did a year ago. And all that knowledge didn't do any good. So we need to somehow get being that is commensurate or equal with the knowledge. In other words, live what we know. The first step in transformation of being is to gather new knowledge. Well, but wait, I thought you just said we had enough knowledge. Well, there are different kinds of knowledge. And the kinds of knowledge that we have are really very ordinary and ineffective when it comes to changing being. Changing being is an entirely different thing, and it takes an entirely different sort of knowledge or type of knowledge or quality of knowledge or level of knowledge in order to change being. If you want to raise your level of being, and that's really what we're looking at, raising our level of being. If you want to raise your level of being, you've got to have a level of knowledge that can can raise your level of being. For example, it won't do you any good to know that people are stupid and mean. You can have that knowledge and it's knowledge. I mean, there it is. People are stupid and mean. People steal. People commit adultery. People murder other people. That kind of knowledge doesn't do you any good unless you can connect it up with something, some kind of knowledge that can remedy that in some way. And the only way to remedy it, of course, is in yourself. You're not going to remedy it in anyone else. You've got to remedy it in yourself first. You've got to take the medicine first. So when you're on the airplane, when we were on a plane, it's coming over. You remember when the stewardess or the cabin attendant stood up and they showed you how to use the seatbelt, how it worked, pull this and it unclicks and you click it together and that's how it works and you pull it tight. Then they also show you the oxygen mask. If the cabin loses pressure, a mask will come down from right above you there. Pull it towards you, pull on the cord, put it over your face, put the elastic band behind your head and then breathe. Even if the bag does not fill up, oxygen is still present, so just breathe. Don't worry about the bag filling up. Then they tell you something else that's really important. If you're with someone 
someone that you need to help, a small child or someone who's older and can't do it for themselves, put your mask on first, then help the other person. This is crucial, and this is one of the main steps we miss in this work. We go right to putting the mask on the other person first, and then what happens to us? Uh, we pass out. We pass out in this dream state of imaginary I. I'm fully conscious. I'm helping all these people. Look what I've done. Oh, aren't I wonderful? And that's death to your development. It's literally death to your development. It drives a stake through the heart of your potential unfoldment and transformation. Now, the other person may be able to develop, but you've just shot yourself in the foot. So don't use this on other people. Use this on yourself. Put the mask on yourself first. You start breathing first. You start getting the remedy first. You start taking medicine first. Then, if you're in a position, when you're in a position, or if you're in a position to help someone else with their mask, then do that. But first, take care of your own house. Know yourself first. That's the most important thing. Okay. As I've said before, heaven's first law is order. The first step in transformation of being is to gather new knowledge. But it's a step which needs to be followed by the next step if being is to change. Being told you can't do, you're not one, you're full of negative emotions, you have many different eyes, each one with a small will of its own, that you're asleep, that you have no permanent eye, that what you feel as yourself is really an imaginary eye, and that it feels like you're conscious, but you're not really. All of the things that you say and do are all part of this illusion of imaginary eye. This is new knowledge. First of all, you can see that gathering this new knowledge is not easy. And the reason gathering it is not easy is because we're already full of a lot of life knowledge. And we would have to get rid of some of that life knowledge to make room for this new knowledge. Now, part of that is called metanoia, changing your mind. The first thing you have to do is get some things out of your mind. So you've got to be able to choose, be selective in a sense. It's not really a choice so much because you don't have a choice about it, but you do have the ability to select. So you can select this ordinary knowledge and stay with that, or you can select this other challenging knowledge that's rather unpleasant, that feels unpleasant, and that causes the false personality great suffering. So it's like someone comes along, they say, well, you're a machine. You're not awake. You just think you are. Ordinary knowledge says, that's bull. I am so awake and I can prove it. I'm yelling at you right now because you're a jerk and I heard what you're saying and I'm right here right now and you're an idiot. And they have missed the whole point. They think that they know something. And the truth is they know nothing about what we're talking about. So this new knowledge has to really transplant or supplant this old knowledge. Now, in esoteric teachings, you find this all the time. You'll find that the younger often supplants the older. You'll find it in the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. He was born first. But Jacob then supplanted him, and he became the heir to everything. Well, what that means is that the first man, the man of the world who has this knowledge, has to be supplanted by this new man that comes afterwards. And what feeds him is new knowledge. And then he has to take the place of the old man. Well, the old man's not just going to give up. He wants to fight. He wants to hold his position. So we end up in this struggle. This is part of the disparity. So what we're looking for is this new knowledge that's not like life knowledge, that's not ordinary knowledge. The false personality suffers at the hands of this knowledge because knowledge has the power to destroy these illusions that we're living under. Well, the false personality is illusions. The imaginary I is what covers the false personality. I've used this analogy before. If you go to Chinatown during one of their New Year's celebrations, they'll often see a dragon. The dragon is really just a coating, a covering. And underneath that dragon, what makes it go undulate and move along the road and look like it's a dragon is a bunch of people with sticks underneath it. And they're going along in a synchronized way. They're moving the sticks up and down that makes the dragon look like it's moving along, undulating like a worm. 
is not really a dragon, but it looks like a dragon. And what that covering is, that dragon covering, is covering all those different eyes, all those different people in there. This is the analogy that I use sometimes to show us what imaginary eye is. It's like this coating over the false personality, all these different eyes, this fragmented self. And we have this illusion of oneness because we've got this veneer over it. But the veneer is just that. It's only a coating. It's like that. I'll try and move along here. So knowledge has the power to destroy the illusions. Well, that is very threatening to the false personality and very painful to the false personality. The false personality doesn't like that because the false personality is based on self-emotions and self-love. When that self-love is touched, it's very tender, very, very tender, unimaginably tender. You can just go and blow on it or look at self-love and it can be offended. Have you ever been offended by the way someone looked at you? I rest my case. That's self-love. It is that sensitive that just a look can send it into a rage, or a look can send it into depression, or a look can send it in a negative state. So that's what we're dealing with. And when the false personality is suffering at the hands of this new knowledge, it fights it, just the same way you would fight being poked with a stick or having someone touch you with a hot poker. You would try and resist that. Well, the false personality does the same thing. It has this whole survival thing because it thinks it's there. It thinks it exists. And for it, it does exist. For us to say it's an illusion, well, it's all very nice. It's like to say, I am not my body. Right, of course you're not your body. But if someone hits it with a hammer, you're going to scream. Not just your body, you will. So the work aims at deconstructing the illusion by showing us our pictures of ourselves, showing us that they're not real, showing us that we are not real. We're not the good people we take ourselves to be. Oh, no. How can that be? I, I feel like a good person. I do good things. I volunteer my time and I tithe my money and I, and I do nice things and I help little old ladies across the street and I, I'm very, I cook meals and I do this and that for people. I'm a good person. The work tries to show us that that is an illusion, that that is this imaginary eye, this dragon skin covering over all these different eyes, that there's a lot more to you than what you see of yourself, than the pictures you have of yourself. What possible good can it be to see that you're not a good person? Does it feel good? No. Does it make you a good person? No. So what possible good could it be to see that you're not a good person? What kind of a person would go around and tell other people you're not a good person? Well, obviously a person who just likes to hurt people. Obviously a person who just is mean-spirited and is just going around kicking people because he's angry or upset or something. Clearly. So it can't do any possible good. And that's how we look at it. What good is it to be told that you can be mean, spiteful, hateful, and even evil toward a person, even the person you say you love? What good is it? It's just offensive. It's abrasive. It's confrontive. Who wants that? Well, I don't. What I doesn't? Well, the false personality doesn't. The false personality that is full of self-love and pictures of itself and its goodness doesn't want to hear that because it's contradictory. And it begins to deconstruct the illusion of that false personality, the illusion of imaginary I, by making us see the pictures. That's the aim of the work. That doesn't mean the work will do that. That's the aim of the work. That's what the work's for. Now you have to apply it. Now you have to apply the hot poker to yourself. Who is going to do that? Well, I tell you, without proper valuation, you won't do it. You must see for yourself what you are like. So in some small way, you must begin to see yourself. In some small way, you must begin to sincerely, objectively, properly observe yourself. And the work tells you how to do that. It gives you specific things to look at, specific things to see about yourself that you do not see are there, but that it says are there. You need the faith to know that there's something that has seen and something is telling you, look in this direction. 
If you look in this way, in this direction, eventually you will see it if you are sincere. If you really wish to transform your being, if you really wish to develop, eventually you will see it. Just keep looking. And so the reason I repeat these things all the time is just for that reason. It's the beginning of the unraveling of this illusion. Be sure that if you think you're kind, you think you're generous, you think you're good, if you think that about yourself, you're identified with the false personality. The moment that you start to think, well, I'm a good person, you're identified with the false personality. If you think you're kind, well, I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm not like that. Oh, look at the bunny rabbit. Oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, look at the animals. I would never hurt them. I'm a good person. If you're doing that, you can be certain that you are identified with the false personality. You're looking at a picture that is not you. You're looking at the skin of the dragon and you're missing all the little guys underneath with sticks who at any moment can start a war with each other or with you and start poking you or beating. In case you haven't recognized that that happens in you, look at how many times you make a mistake and then you're beat and bludgeoned by something inside of you with sticks. Look at how many times that's happened. And you have to, you have to see that and consciously stop that. Very difficult process for a lot of people. Some people, not so much. Other people, it's huge. The knowledge isn't enough. You must understand it. And the only way you will ever create the force of understanding in you is to see for yourself the truth of what is being said. Seeing is above everything. I know I say this a lot, but it bears repeating a lot. Seeing is above everything. You must first see. In our condition, in our state, as we are in our culture, in our society, our societies, this day on this earth, under 48 orders of law, what we have fallen to, we must see first. Feeling, sensing, that is for someone else. That comes later. But right now, we need to see. So, I say, seeing is above everything. You've got to see it for yourself. We must learn to distinguish the disparity between knowledge and practice. What does that mean? It means being. What is being? Being is practice. It's what you do. That's what being is. Is that all that being is? No. But for our purposes of definition now, what we're looking at is being as practice. We're nothing like what we take ourselves to be. We're not doing. It is doing. The illusion that keeps us imprisoned must be destroyed. False personality, which holds that illusion up, is covering itself with that illusion, is going to suffer greatly as that illusion is attacked. Make no mistake, I am not attacking you. The work is attacking false personality. Your problem with the work is your identification with false personality. Your problem with me is your identification with false personality. Your problem with other people is your identification with false personality. It's not the other people. There's no one there. There are books on a shelf. It's a story, and you're taking it as real, and you're writing yourself into that story, and you're becoming offended by it. It's you, not them. You must learn this. You must see this for yourself. Until you see this for yourself, blah, 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 Charlie Brown. For those of you from Minnesota, you know what I'm talking about. Because Charlie Brown came from Minnesota. He's a Minnesotan, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Womp, 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 Charlie Brown. You know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. It's, it's always nice when somebody knows what I'm talking about, even if it's not me. So what is this then? The false personality will suffer greatly. This is useful suffering because it leads to change of being. What makes it useful? It leads to change of being. So useless suffering is that which increases false personality. It doesn't change your being. It just increases, supports, and strengthens false personality. The wrong direction. That's not the direction we want to move in. We know what that is by what it eats. False personality feeds on self-emotions, which bolster imaginary I. Self-love, praise, 
self-merit, all those self-emotions, oh, self-justifying, self-defense. That's a good one. Whenever you find yourself defending yourself, whenever you find yourself defending yourself, it is a feast day for the false personality. It is gobbling that up and it's getting stronger every moment. And guess who's getting weaker every moment? You and the work. So your connection with the work is weakening every moment that you are feeding that to false personality. Do you do it consciously? Of course not. It's like a leech sucking on you. You have to find it first. Now, the thing about leeches is you don't really feel them. You have to see them. So you first see it and then you need to remove it. And the removal of that leech often is extremely painful. Why is that? The leech doesn't want to give up its dinner. So it hangs on. Same thing with the false personality. So this is a different way to hold suffering. And hopefully it'll be a different way to hold the things that you have to go through in the work. Because there are certain things we all have to go through in the work that are going to be very, very painful. How painful will they be? Well, that's entirely up to you. The reason people attack the work, have you ever noticed that people attack the work? They attack the work and those who teach it. That's a bunch of bull. That's just a bunch of nonsense. Who could believe that? That's not the way it is. Or he's just this or she's just that. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just manipulating people. That's just mind control. That's just this. That's just their ego running them. That's whatever that is. So that's attacking the work and those who teach it is because the intelligence behind the work is perceived by the false personality as attacking it. Is the work attacking the false personality? No. The work is not attacking the false personality any more than the sun coming up is attacking the night. It's simply dispersing it, showing it for what it is. That's all. To the degree that we are identified with the night or the false personality or the dark side of ourselves or the light side of ourselves, what we think is the light side of ourselves. Because let's face it, if we think we're good people and generous people and kind people, then we're identified with the light side of ourselves and we're ignoring or lying about the dark side of ourselves not willing to see it, which is the other side of us. So we become fragmented and then the false personality arises out of that fragmentation. So the work is perceived as attacking the false personality. It is an assault on you if you're identified with the false personality. This is why people get so crazy about this work and about its teachers. There was a teacher in New York. He's dead now, but they still have a website dedicated to bashing this teacher as a cult leader. He's dead. He's been dead for years. Doesn't matter. They're still beating the dead horse. Why? Because that's what the false personality does. Remember I talked to you yesterday or the other day about two dogs being in a fight? Yeah. And the way to separate the dogs, the way to get the dogs out of the fight is not to beat on the dogs. You hit the dog to try and get it to stop. It thinks the other dog's doing the damage to it. It just bites harder and fights harder. It's not the way to do it. This is the same thing, but the false personality doesn't know that. It just wants to hit, stop, beat, destroy. And so it attacks the work and those who stand for the work for that reason. Now, this process isn't a one-time thing. It's a lifelong work of connecting knowledge with being through understanding. Our chief lack isn't knowledge, it's understanding, which we must create in ourselves for ourselves. The knowledge must be understood before we can be what we know. My father was fond of saying, money doesn't grow on trees. Well, nor does understanding, unless it does. There are things that do grow on trees that can be traded for money. There are things that do occur in our lives that can be traded for understanding. That's my point. So it may not grow on trees, but what I'm saying is we have enough fruit right now that we could use to trade it for understanding. And what is that fruit? Well, it's the fruit of the false personality. The false personality is the food that the new man can eat. 
something's going to eat something. Either the false personality is going to eat your essential self or your essential self is going to eat your false personality. As it is now, the false personality has been eating the essential self. What needs to happen, what the metanoia, the change of mind is, this flip is, transformative process that needs to begin is the essential self starts to eat the false personality, starts to devour the false personality. The way it's said in the work is the false personality needs to become passive and the essential self needs to become active. And there you have it. There are specific things that we can do to create the force of understanding in ourselves, chiefly proper self-observation. This process is painful and we resist pain. Why do we resist pain? Because we're identified with the false personality, mainly. This is the paring, the peeling of the onion, the stripping of the overcoats. So Gurdjieff called it like peeling the onion. Ospensky's thing was stripping overcoats. As you can see, Ospensky was more palatable. Well, it's like stripping overcoats, whereas Gurdjieff went right to the heart of it. No, it's peeling the onion. And trust me, when I'm skinning you, you're not going to like it. You're going to squeal. And if you're not squealing, there's a reason for that. Dead chickens don't squawk when you pluck them, but a live chicken does squawk when you pluck it. So if you're identified with the false personality and somebody starts pulling your feathers, you're going to squawk. If you're not identified with the false personality and someone starts pulling your feathers, you're not going to squawk. So how do I know when someone's identified with the false personality? They squawk when I pluck them. <laughs> I know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? And not only that, but then they rush to each other's defense. That's another thing they're bound to do. Wait, if he's plucking that chicken, he's going to pluck me next. We better stop this here, cut this off here So before it gets to me. Hold off there. That's not the way to do that. How could you treat that person that way? Listen to the way they're squawking. Whoa. And so there you go. That's identification with the false personality. That's feeding the false personality, feeding self-love, self-emotions. All you're doing is strengthening the false personality and you're shooting yourself in the foot when it comes to your aim, if you have a work aim of development. If you don't have a work aim of development, what are you doing here? Why would anybody put themselves through this? That just doesn't make any sense at all. The false personality, that is the taskmaster that makes a misery of your life, will cause you to feel hurt. This is what you really need to see for yourself. You need to see that when you're feeling hurt, it's this thing, this cruel master who's lording it over you. I mean, he's the one, the false personality, the strong man. He's the one who's doing it to you. And you're the one, like the dog, blaming it on what you see in front of you and not realizing that the pain is coming from, not this other dog, but from inside of you. And it is the false personality. It's a very difficult concept to actually realize on a daily basis. But it's not impossible. And you can start somewhere, and I suggest that this is the place we need to start. As we are, we're full of a type of life knowledge we acquired from teachers, parents, peers, that kind of thing. The question is for us is, can we be this knowledge? Can you be the life knowledge that you have gathered? Sure, if life lets you, you have integrity, you're not a hypocrite, you're an honest person, you don't lie to people, you tell them the truth, and you always show one face. You don't have two faces, right? Ah, but when we were talking down there, you were that person. Mm -hmm. Now you've had some time to think about it, and you think, oh, maybe not. Maybe that's just a picture. Okay, good. That's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for that doubt, that little bit of self-doubt. Down there, you were sure. Yes, that's the way I am. I wouldn't do that. Now you're not so sure. Okay. That's good. That means you've been observing yourself. You've been looking through your past. You've been looking through your work memory. You've been seeing, you know, maybe I'm not as wonderful as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not really a good person. Maybe I'm not as generous. Maybe I'm not as kind. Maybe I'm not as forgiving. Maybe I am kind of inflexible and rigid. And maybe I do have some problems. Maybe I'm not as wonderful as I thought I was. 
maybe it's not a good idea to judge that person so harshly. This is exactly what this work aims at. And when you start to do that, you know that the work is working in you. Don't take credit for it. You're not doing it. The work is doing it in you. I tell you this because this is the practice of karma yoga. If you let the work do it, you will not get boastful about it. You will not fall because of it. If you start to acknowledge it, take credit for it, I promise you that the false personality will jump on it like it's been starving to death and it will suck it dry. You will lose everything and the false personality will be strengthened. My recommendation is don't accept the praise that it offers you. Give it away. The way that esoteric teachings write it out is you make a sacrifice, you drain the blood, you pour the blood on the ground, and then you cut the fat away and you burn the fat as an offering on the fire. Now, the two things that we like about meat, blood and fat. Without blood and without fat, meat is leather. And unless you want to eat your shoes, that's not really something you want to do, is it? You don't really want to eat. People don't eat their shoes as a rule. I mean, they do if they're starving to death. People eat their shoes. But as a rule, people don't sit down to eat their shoes. They look for meat with blood and fat. But if you take the blood and the fat and you give it to something else, then it's lost all of its savor. It's not savory anymore. We don't want it. So this is an image of the false personality. If you'll take the blood, the life, the life is in the blood. If you'll take the life, the blood, and the fat, the savor, and you'll give it to the work, then the false personality won't be able to get it. That's what it's saying. So don't let self-emotions get that. Sacrifice that stuff. That's what that's about. Can we be this knowledge? Yeah, if life lets us. Well, what does that really mean? We're talking about crisis that had happened in the United Kingdom and how in two weeks of a strike of what was it? Truckers who took petroleum from the refinery to the gas stations. In two weeks, all kinds of things started to break down and happen. And one of those things was food stopped showing up in stores. People stopped delivering meals on wheels to elderly people. There was a fuel shortage, so they couldn't get ambulances to take people to the hospital. And hospital workers couldn't get to the hospital. People couldn't get to their jobs anymore. So the power station started to shut down because people couldn't go and work there. They couldn't get there in their cars. All these happened within two weeks. Everything was on the brink of falling apart, a crisis. You said two of those happened in the UK recently. or mm. And so these were being studied. Is that correct? Or something like that? or. No, managing them at the time. Managing them, okay. So you were actually in the process of managing those things happening. Like, how are we going to deal with this? That's my point. We were talking about that cr these crises in the UK. And in two weeks, two weeks, civilization began to unravel. Civilization is like a pig painted gold. Scratch off that gold veneer and there's still a pig underneath. That's what you found out in the UK. You found out by managing that situation that if people had that thin veneer, of civilization scratched, they started to get really nasty. There would be riots, there would be looting, there would be murders, there would be all kinds of problems if it was allowed to go any further. So it has to be stopped. That's what I mean by if life lets you. So yeah, you've got this life knowledge that you've acquired. You're a good person. You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't do this, you don't do that. Scratch that veneer. And in two weeks, you're not that good person anymore because life won't let you be that good person. That's my point. Can we be this knowledge? Yeah, if life lets you. Work knowledge will try to replace much of our life knowledge and reinterpret the bits that it doesn't replace. Unless the work gets beyond mere memory, no change of being will occur. It can't just stay in memory. If it does, it just stays in memory, in ordinary memory. Nothing will happen. It has no power to do anything. So let me put it this way. Let's say you've got a packet of memory 
and you take that packet of memory and you open it up and you cultivate some ground and you make a row and you spread it out in there and then you cover it up with earth and then you water it and then you let the sun get to it. What will happen is it will grow. If you leave that memory in that little packet, nothing's going to happen. You're never going to get anything. Nothing's going to grow because it wasn't planted. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing more than just allowing this knowledge to lie in memory. Work knowledge is going to do all this, but you've got to be able to use it. If it doesn't get out of the packet, out of the seed packet, it's never going to grow. So that's what I mean when I say we've got to get it beyond mere memory or no change of being will occur. People speak of self-remembering without understanding. You must first understand through self-observation that you're asleep before you can properly remember yourself. And one of the reasons I didn't want to answer that question this morning is because I knew I was going to deal with it. And I know that if you get off on that, it's a whole other tangent. We could talk for an hour about that. We could talk forever about that, actually. But how much understanding we you going to get just by talking about it? Well, not much. This is just seed. You need to plant this seed and cultivate it and make sure that you protect it so that it can grow. That's your business. My job is to deliver the seed for you. My job for me is to plant the seed in me and to cultivate it so that my being actually begins to change. Okay, so then basically we're talking about remembering ourselves and how we do that is by first observing that we're asleep. Now, yes, it can happen that you just wake up through some conscious shock, through some shock that comes to you and you wake up and then you realize, you remember yourself, you realize that you were asleep. That this taste of consciousness is very different than the taste of consciousness you had before this taste of consciousness. It's like putting salt in your mouth. Or another example is when I was taking art classes when I was in high school, I remember we'd close our eyes and a teacher would come around and squeeze lemon juice into our mouths. Close your eyes, open your mouth, tilt your head back. The teacher would come along, squeeze lemon juice in your mouth, and then you would paint. And just an experiment to see what colors you would use, what you would paint, how it would come out. And it was interesting. So the reaction was the, from the taste. And so consciousness has a taste, and you need to learn to taste it. Well, stark consciousness like a lemon or stark consciousness like sugar, they're easy to taste. But it's the finer, more subtle taste that we need to develop, acquire a taste for, that we need to train ourselves to be able to find. And this is your work. This is something that you must do. This is something you can only do through proper self-observation. Think of the person with whom you're most negatively identified. Oh, that should be easy for you. Think of the, oh, that should be easy for you. Oh, that should be easy for you. Well, actually, if you've observed yourself at all, and if you've worked at all, and we have this week, you know the person you're most negatively identified with. So when you think of the person you're most negatively identified with, if you're able to really acknowledge your identification, then use that to see your sleep. When you are identified with that person, you're asleep. Trying to remember yourself is like trying to be conscious without something of which to be conscious. You can't be conscious of nothing any more than you can remember yourself about nothing. There's simply nothing to work on. You now have something to work on. There is this person with whom you are negatively identified. Now you have something to remember yourself about. In this situation, I must remember myself about this person. My identification with this person puts me to sleep. If I want to wake up, I've got to stop identifying with this person. What's the way to do that? Well, get that person out of my life, of course. Annihilate them. No, stop identifying with that person. That's the way to do it. The false personality's way is annihilation, separation, division, divide, and conquer. That's not the way that the work does it. The way the work does it is to include that person in yourself. 
to find that person in yourself, to find the qualities that you find or the problems that you find negative about that person, find them in yourself. And so when I said to you the other day, well, that's because that person is a mirror image of you. And you said, oh, James, now you're making me work. <laughs> exactly. And that's why you're here, so that you can come up to these things and work on them. And so now you're getting the opportunity to do that. And lucky you, you're going to have lots more where that came from. Now, we must understand the knowledge being asleep. You've got to understand the knowledge. Being asleep is knowledge. So you understand that being asleep is something you can do. That's knowledge. Now, we've got to understand that knowledge for it to have any power to change our being. It's not going to change our being to just go around saying, oh, I'm asleep. Oh, I'm asleep. I know lots of people who can just acknowledge all day long. Yeah, I'm asleep. I'm asleep. Oh, I was asleep. Oh, I was so asleep when that happened. Oh, but you're awake now. Oh, no, I'm still asleep. It does nothing. It's just blah, blah, blah. It's just parroting. It's just talk. So after you think, thought of this person and you realize that when it comes to this person, you're asleep, then you've got something to work on. Once you begin to see how you sleep in a specific way through proper self-observation, you have to try to awaken in this area of yourself until you can be what you know. As it is, you know forgiveness, but can you be forgiveness? That's the question. And this is how we need to close this gap, this disparity between knowledge and being. That's what this work is about. That's what I'm after. That's what my aim is. And that's what I aim at with you. You are the subject of this work. But that other person, no, you are the subject of this work. But that other person, that other person is here so that you can work on you. That other person that you're identified with and negative about, that other person you're negative about so that you can work on you. That is their purpose. That is their gift to you. Their gift to you is you get to work. When you think about it, it's a great gift and you owe them something. But as it is, you think you're owed something by them. But the truth is, you owe them something. This is how you cancel a debt, which is forgiveness. You realize your indebtedness to the person that you think owes you something. And then you pay them instead of requiring them to pay you. That's canceling the debt. That's what we're aiming at. And of course, I will not quit until the debt is canceled. Or you quit. One of the two will happen. Either you'll quit or you'll cancel the debt. For a long time, we make others the subject of this work, and no change of being is possible. The missing link in this work that connects what's taught with what you are being is self-observation. You must be the work. Only then will you begin to overcome the curse of life for man on this planet. What is the curse of life for man on this planet? Negative emotions? The curse of our life on this planet is negative emotions. We are cursed with negative emotions. It's awful. The world is powered by them. We are governed by them. You are governed by them and the world is governed by them. It is a curse. We must strive to live the work instead of remembering it or parroting it. When you make this connection, you will start to draw a force from above and your being will change. You don't have to do anything about it. You don't change your being. You get the stuff out of the way so that your being can change. That's what I have to say about that. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.